From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, a tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. I hope you all had a terrific weekend. We're back at it here on EWTN's Open Line. Father John Tregilio is in the house. If you've got a question for Father, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line if you are outside of North America. That number again is 2051205-2712985. You can always send us an email, open line at EWTN.com. And um that's open line at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubinski and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Monday, except when he's not, Father John Tregilio. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, listen, I've got a question for you. What? Well, I don't. Christopher does. Oh, but Christopher does. Christopher okay. does. He wants to know, is it a mortal or venial sin for someone to use vulgar and obscene four-letter words? If so, which of the Ten Commandments <laughs> forbids it? Oh, I'm not the one to ask. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I'm more of the St. Jerome school. <laughs> he had colorful language. Yeah. Um, I would say it's a mortal sin uh, whenever it's blasphemy and you use the name of Christ, the name of Jesus or God, Holy Spirit, Mary or the saints to curse. Um, if it's just vulgar four-letter words, it's bad manners. Uh, it would be a venial sin if you're careless about it. It could be a, a mortal sin if you say you do it in church because you're showing disrespect, irreverence, and possible sacrilege to the Blessed Sacrament, to the house of God, or to the person if you certainly use four-letter words to your your parents, uh, grandparents, um, your immediate uh, superior, if like I as a priest, God forbid, would say something like that to my bishop, uh, I, I would say that that would be a, a mortal sin. But if it's among peers, if it's just bad manners, if, uh, um, you know, my dad was in the Navy for World War II and for Korea, and uh, he told me he, he <laughs> did have salty language. I, always, the context is is what you need to look at too. So, depending on w- where it's being done, uh, why it's being done, and to whom and by whom, okay. So all those come into play. But I would say in general, it would be a venial sin, but it can be a mortal sin depending on the context. You know, something that comes up once in a while along these lines is the notion that if we substitute a word for a socially unaccepted word, then we are, in a, in essence, 
you know, people know we're doing that, so we are in <laughs> essence doing the same thing as if we had said the word. Yeah, now, I've always kind of been of the of the mind that any effort to mitigate any sort of unpleasantness or evil is a worthwhile endeavor. What say you? Yes, I would be of that same school because, uh, again, blasphemy is the worst. So it's not that I'm advocating vulgarity, but it, it, it amazes me that so many people are more comfortable um, using vulgarity uh, than they are with, with um, uh, I mean, they're more comfortable with blasphemy than with vulgarity. Um, if you use a pretend word or a word from another language that most people wouldn't understand, you and I have to have safety valves. We've got to blow off some steam. Um, you know, um, my mother, when we were growing up, she came up with the most bizarre things. Like she would mention a piece of furniture. Okay. And that, when we heard that, that we knew, we knew had nothing to do with the table or with the sofa. That was her way of expressing her, her, her angst. <laughs> so like I, like you said, I, it's better to do use something. But again, if your intent is to hurt or insult someone, that's different than you blowing off some steam. Uh, and certainly blasphemy, you must avoid at all costs vulgarity, uh, in, in many situations. But, uh, Again, if you're a bunch of sailors on a boat and, you know, a torpedo's coming at you, I'm sure there's going to be some colorful language. <laughs> My late wife Susie always used to say, biscuit, in moments of frustration. <laughs> See, and then so, you knew what that meant. <laughs> oh, I knew. <laughs> and it didn't make me hungry, I'll tell you that right now. Um, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We've got a couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-288. E-W-T-N, that's 3986. Mike would like to know, if during Mass the priest doesn't hold the chalice or at least have his hand touching it while pronouncing the words of consecration, would the wine actually become the precious blood and would there be a valid Mass? Uh, yes, and I think we had the uh, almost exact same question uh, a week ago. Um, and I know it, it would be illicit for a priest to purposely, intentionally not hold the chalice or the patent. But even if he intentionally didn't do it, it would still be valid. Okay, the lyseity would be uh, along the lines if he's doing it um, purposely or you know he's for whatever reason. I know some priests, um, you know, they've they've got um, arthritis. Uh, they just, I, I found the, on the ice to, uh, right after I got over the, the COVID pneumonia last year and I fractured my shoulder. So elevating the chalice and the host was, was a bit difficult for me at that time. So the context again is, is very important, but if the priest doesn't touch the chalice, if he doesn't touch the patent, as long as he intends to do what the church does, as long as he says the words of consecration, as long as it's wheat bread and grape wine, and he intends to consecrate that. And then it happens. All right, very good. Now I've got a question from Irvin, and I even I know the question. I know the answer to this question. You know the answer already. Well, I know the question for sure, but I know, oh. <laughs> I know I know the answer too. Right. Irvin says, "How do you know when your prayers for those in purgatory have been answered?" Um. Well, you you know when God willing you go to heaven and you see him up there. <laughs> I can I can <laughs> give I can give you a I can give you a here and now answer to that question. Yes. When Holy Mother Church canonizes them a saint. That is absolutely correct, and uh, that would that's your trump card. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, we know for sure now that um, Mother Teresa is is in heaven. She got canonized, mm -hmm. and so yes, because that's an infallible papal decree. 
However, there are many people in heaven who have not been canonized, and because they're in heaven, that means they're not in purgatory. So outside of being canonized, uh, we hope for the best. But that's a good reason never to presume always still have masses offered for the faithful departed. And continue to pray for them yourself. Yes. And this whole notion— just leave it go. Yeah, and this whole notion of— well, as you mentioned, there are there are plenty of saints in heaven that have not been officially canonized by Holy Mother Church, and if your loved one or someone you're praying for happens to be one of those people, don't worry. The prayer, even if they are in heaven, is not going to go to waste. Uh, we do have the Mediatrix of all graces and the creator of the universe that can distribute those graces as they see fit, huh? Absolutely. So it's not a waste of your time, and it's not a waste of God's grace because I know some people say, well, Grandma most likely is in heaven. And I said, well, most likely, but most likely isn't metaphysical certitude, so I would still pray for her. And then, like you said, if she's already in heaven, uh, that grace is going to go to someone who needs it. So uh, you don't have to worry that you know it's like a change that's under the couch, and then you only find it when you start moving things around. You know, we, we as humans go to a tremendous amount of effort sometimes to find reasons to not do what we ought to do, huh? Oh, yeah, and, you know, we're always looking for the lowest common denominator, okay, uh, you know, we want the lowest price possible, and, you know, the um, least amount of effort, and in the spiritual life, it tends to be the opposite. Just like in this life, in the spiritual life, there's no substitute for hard work. That's absolutely correct. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Pick up the phone and give us a call. Got a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd also love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And if you are outside of the United States and Canada, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. And you can always send us an email. Keep Michael McCall, the producer man, busy. Send us emails, open line <laughs> at EWTN.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with the one and only Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, EWTN's media missionaries prayerfully take EWTN to parishes in the community through the print and electronic media that we provide to them. You can help EWTN share the good news by becoming a media missionary. Simply visit EWTNmissionaries.com today and join us in sharing the eternal word with the entire world. We are giving you a golden opportunity to fulfill your baptismal mandate to be an evangelist. 
So log on today to EWTNMissionaries.com. To the phones we go. First up today is Marie in the great state of Maryland. She's listening on the Amazon Echo. Marie, thanks for holding. You're on with Father John. Uh, my question has to do with um, seminary training on homiletics or what is actually appropriate, because uh, some of the priests who are very good homilists, at the end they kind of trail off and you don't really get the conclusion as well as you could. So I want to know if maybe offering like a short, quick prayer at the end would help them come to a stronger finish, and if that's allowed. Okay, well, um, th- that's a good question, and uh, I actually am one of several priests that teach homiletics at uh, Mount St. Mary's uh, Seminary, which is in Emmitsburg, Maryland, um, if anyone's interested. <laughs> and, um, one of the things I tell the seminarians, I know my colleague uh, priests do the same, is that um, you know, content and delivery are equally important when you're preaching. And so you have to do some research, you have to do some preparation in uh, what you're going to say, but also how you're going to say it. And what I would very typically say to the, the, to the men, your opening, your first line is bait on the hook. You want to get them interested, the, the, the congregation. And then the very last line is what you want them to go home thinking about. So you want a, a short phrase or sentence, a slogan, so to speak, that ties it all in and ends the, the homily, but you want to end it on a high note. I, don't, I tell them, don't drop off your voice. I said, have a very specific, and there should be a connection between the beginning and the end. Of course, the middle is, is obviously very important, but sometimes guys only put emphasis on the middle, and, and uh, they overlook the beginning and the end. So as this uh, caller points out, uh, some guys start going off on tangents. Uh, when we we give them classes, not only we tell them, but we evaluate them, and their peers evaluate them. And then when they're deacons and are actually preaching uh, at the seminary community, uh, we mention to them, look, you know, you had a good homily today. However, you, you had maybe four endings in it already, okay? Uh, you want to have one specific point because people are not going to be able to digest the Summa Theologica in one sermon. And you want people to be motivated. And one of the greatest things I remember when I was being taught, and it was Father Levis, who, my mentor, who actually told me this uh, when I was newly ordained, says, John, your job as a preacher is to inspire, to aspire. You want to inspire the congregation to aspire to holiness. And the only way you can do that is when you give a coherent, interesting, and edifying homily. Thanks so much, Marie. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We had Marie. Now we'll go to Joseph. We're going to cover the whole Holy Family here in the first part of the program. (laughs) Joseph is in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Joseph, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'll try to keep this brief. The basis of my question is, I know the Church has teaching on self-defense if the person doing the harm is knowledgeable and has the intent to do harm. But what does the Church say about instances where the perpetrator is not um, doing whatever it is of their own free will? Uh, Does that make sense? Yes, uh, I understand what you're saying. Um, Obviously, 
an unjust aggressor, you have the absolute right to defend yourself and your loved ones. So if you're the, you know, it's not just you, but if you're in the house, you're to protect your family and friends. But if the person who is attacking you is either under duress, um, if they're, you know, let's say they're insane, uh, let's say they're being blackmailed, uh, they're under influence of drugs or alcohol, um, or let's just say they're, you know, they're driving a car and they're and they're preoccupied and they're they're coming right at you. You still have the right to defend yourself, even if you last resort, okay? Because you are allowed to defend your life, even if the person who is about to take your life or is attempting to isn't aware of it, doesn't have full intention, or maybe their culpability is somewhat uh, uh, diminished. You have that right to protect you and your loved ones that are under your care. Um, It's the same as, you know, if you were um, in the police department. Okay. You can use deadly force, but only as a last resort, and you must um, think quickly because obviously you don't have a time to plan these things out. Um, but uh, the moral culpability would be if there's an easier way to disarm the person, if you can knock them out, if you could disarm them, if you can escape, uh, hide, or whatever. Uh, deadly force must only be used as a last resort, but when it's a split-second decision, you still have that right to defend yourself. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. One open line for you at 833-288-3986. Next stop is the great state of Indiana. Mike is in Indiana listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Mike, you're on with Father John. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I had a question. Uh, About 5 a.m. this morning, I was driving to work listening to uh, a preacher who was not Catholic, and I was enjoying, you know, listening to him, and then uh, he started to talk about how it was a sermon on worship, and he said, you know, the burning of incense and lit, lit candles and uh, secret altar, he said, it's, uh, I guess he said it's not right, and uh, can you tell me if he's incorrect on this? And I do have one other question. I would relate directly to that. Okay. Well, um, Christian worship is certainly um, was influenced very heavily by Jewish worship, and Jewish worship came directly from God. I mean, God told Moses uh, how to worship. So the, you know, the Seder meal uh, when the uh, when the Temple of Jerusalem was built by Solomon. Uh, again, God gave very specific directions on what is how it's to be done. Uh, Jesus at the Last Supper, okay, uh, made a very specific do this, and what is the this he was referring to was the Last Supper, and so he used uh, bread, wheat bread, he used grape wine, uh, he said the words, "This is my body, this is my blood." So ritual is a part of religion, and it's not a violation of our Christianity to. Uh, follow the ritual, especially because we firmly believe it came from Christ or from his church, because Jesus established the church. He said, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And he also said, He who hears you hears me. And, you know, the the, the apostles from day one were very attentive. So when they baptized, they did it exactly the same way. They used water. Uh, they baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They always used bread and wine at the liturgy of the of, of um, 
the Eucharist. So the rituals that we have and the burning of incense, okay, uh, that's something that's a part of, of ritual. It's not something that um, is, is absolutely essential. It's optional. But it adds to it because you and I are, uh, as human beings, we're body and soul, as God made us. And so Catholic worship involves all the five senses. So incense appeals to the sense of smell, music to our ears, uh, stained glass windows and statues to the eyes. Okay, so it's it doesn't it's not distracting. It's the opposite. It helps orient us and edify and uplift us. Whereas we're just sitting in the pew with our eyes closed and just trying to make pious thoughts. It can happen, but uh, again, we're, we're using what God has given us. So I don't see uh, there's any problem with it. The church certainly doesn't see problem. And look at all the saints who have come out in the 2,000 years of the church history, uh, like Mother Teresa, who worked with the poorest of the poor, a very holy woman, but she started her day with a holy hour before the Blessed Sacrament. She had mass, She attended Mass every day. She did the Liturgy of the Hours every day. She prayed her rosary every day. And Mike, did you have a follow-up to that? Yes, I did. I appreciate that. Um, and I, I had, I had a feeling that I was going to get clarity on that. Uh, and I was just wondering on this. Um, I do, and I still enjoy listening to this, to this man. Uh, I was be continuing to listen because I mean, I'm, it did, it did tear at me when I when he started going off on that because I knew, it, I knew it was something wrong about it. So what about me? Thank you. Oh, okay. I would say, you know, if if there's things that are edifying that are, are true, certainly you want to make distinctions. So whenever, and, and Fulton Sheen used to say too, you know, you, we just don't have to, we're, we're not restricted to only read Catholic books or to watch Catholic movies. Uh, we can benefit from uh, the insights of others as long as you and I are always objective and always make sure that we, we, um, we compare and contrast with what the Holy Mother Church has um, has taught us in her magisterium, because that's part of of, of the um, of revelation. We have sacred tradition and sacred scripture, and the, the infallibility of the magisterium is is clear. So as long as what was being said by non-Catholics doesn't contradict that, because you can't contradict God, but if there's a new a nuance or uh, a different perspective that again doesn't uh, contradict, then there, I don't see anything wrong with it. So I've I've known people who you know devout, very devout Catholics would listen to Billy Graham, um, but they would also know where sometimes he would go, he would go off uh, on the wrong uh, direction. Okay, but maybe eighty percent of what he said was was not something that we had any problems with. You know, and I think sometimes as Catholics we get a little intimidated because of the veracity with which some of the objections come our way. And, you know, really in this this particular, you know, example, um, you know, every Christian denomination that I am aware of acknowledges the legitimacy of the book of Revelation. All right, that should cover the incense question all by itself. And, you know, really when you look at candles, I mean, the, the a, a lit candle, you know, is symbolic of of the light of Christ, and I don't know what Christian could possibly have an objection to that, so sometimes the answers for us are maybe a little more simple than we realize, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, Jesus said you don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket, so, you know, the use of things that we have that are, for some people, very peripheral, for, for us, it's not uh, essential, 
but it's it's a component, you know. So like the incense and the music, uh, the things that we see, some are very practical. You know, incense was practical in the Middle Ages because people would work the fields. Like you go to in Spain, and they have that enormous incenser, that thurible that weighs uh, a ton. Because people smelled, they needed it stunk up the church, but it also had the symbolic value of incense rising up like our prayers. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Julian, Wyoming, Diane in Ohio, Sherry in the Republic of Texas, and hopefully we'll talk to you. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. That's exactly what Diane did. She is in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Diane, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you, and thanks for taking my call. What can we do for you? Okay, I have two questions actually about the math. Um, one question, my first is, um, when, right before the priest, um, says the, says the gospel, um, or after he says the gospel, then the, uh, congregation will do a cross over their head and then a cross, like, over their lips and then their heart. And I was just wondering what that meant. Okay, um... That, that's an excellent question because a lot of people see it, they do it, but they don't know why. <laughs> and uh, everything we do in the, in the Catholic Church, especially at the Mass, has some meaning to it. So in the ritual, in the, in the Roman Missal, that's the book that the priest uses to celebrate Mass, and in the lectionary, uh, it says there that the priest or deacon, um, before he reads the gospel, is to make that sign of the cross with their thumb and the words that they say themselves may the words of this holy gospel be on our thoughts, on our lips, and in our hearts. And that also reflects beautifully what's in the catechism. I just in fact taught a course on that this past semester on the fourth pillar on prayer, that those are the three um, methods of prayer. We have um, verbal prayer, the, the lips, we have mental prayer, uh, what we think, and then uh, we have um, we have the contemplative prayer, which is in our heart. So uh, that's something that you can say in the pew, but, but quietly to yourself. The priest and deacon is also to say it uh, to themselves, but we say it as we're making those gestures. And then you had another question about responses at Mass? Yes, sir, I do. Um, so back, you know, a lo- years ago, when Father would, um, you know, wish his congregation peace be with you, you know, our response would be, you know, and also with you. And I think it was like six or seven years ago that got changed to and with your spirit. Um, and then also the, the response uh, to the um, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed got changed to, Lord, I am not worthy that you enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. So I was just curious what the meaning was in the change or why that was changed. Okay. Again, a very good question. And um, 
that was that was the stimulus. In fact, when Pope Benedict had the the Roman Missal tweaked, so this is now the third edition, a typical edition of the English translation of the Roman Missal. That was the impetus for Father Briganti and I to write our the book that we did, uh, Catholic Mass for Dummies. And what happened? Pope Benedict made sure that the uh, the Latin was more accurately translated. What we had before was not uh, invalid, it wasn't illicit, because the church authorized that, but it needed tweaking. So, for, for instance, you know, when you, the, the priest says, the Lord be with you, in the Latin, et cum spirito tuo, it's, and with your spirit. Uh, in English, and also with you, again, uh, it's okay, it'll pass if you were taking a Latin exam, but more accurately, and with your spirit, it's not just, hello, how are you? Uh, you're affirming that the priest who's been ordained by the bishop to celebrate, uh, to be the, the celebrant of the, of the Holy Mass, uh, you're affirming his power uh, through holy orders to be able to affect this wonderful mystery of salvation, which is the Holy Mass. And uh, the one that you, other one that you mentioned at communion time, uh, that is a better accurate translation of what the centurion said. Remember when Jesus was asked by this guy's servant boy, can you come to my house uh, and uh, heal my servant boy? And Jesus, I'll go. And he said, I don't need you to go there. I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. It's a, it's a beautiful scriptural allusion to what happened in the gospel. And it's the ac more accurate translation uh, than, than, we, than when I was ordained in 88, you know, I, for over 20 years, I know what uh, you were talking about, but I I love the the, the uh, newer translation uh, that uh, Pope Benedict authorized in in the third edition. So it's just tweaking and refining. It doesn't mean the old was bad or in any way uh, not good, but this has uh, certainly um, been enhanced. You know, Father John, I had it. Uh, one of the uh, priests at the North American College uh, mentioned to me you know, shortly after the new translation of the Missal had come out, that one of the other motivating factors uh, behind the new translation was that many developing countries had no Latin scholars in their midst at all, and they relied very heavily on English translations, and so they thought it was really, really important that places where they were devoid of Latin scholars had a translation that was more faithful to the Latin. Yeah, certainly the English has a big influence on, on other uh, other countries, other languages, and, uh, you know, like you said, Latin scholars are hard to find these days, um, but I also know from um, the Confraternity Catholic Clergy that, that I, um, I'm the president of here in the United States, we have a, another group in, in England, Scotland, and Australia, and, and Ireland, and when we get together, you know, we, we share stories and talk about, we speak the same language, but sometimes we don't, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, English is one of those languages that has different nuances. That's why I think it was so important to standardize, and I'm hoping that we they're going to also work on the Liturgy of the Hours, the breviary, because uh, that's another one that needs to be tweaked, because like you said, there's not enough Latin scholars out there to do the job themselves. And secondly, uh, the language is so important, we want it done not just right, we want it to be done as well as possible. Thanks so much, Diane. Great questions today on Open Line Monday. 
EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Sherry is in the Republic of Texas, a first-time caller listening on Guadalupe Radio. Sherry, you're on with Father John. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I enjoy your programs very much, and I had a few questions of my own, so I thought I'd call in while you had an open line. Go right ahead. Um, I wondered about uh, a priest, in, during the creed, changes some words of the creed and, and one of the um, another part of the Eucharistic prayer. So he'll say, in the creed, instead of for us men and for our salvation, he omits the word men. And then... Um, Right as we're going to start the Eucharistic prayer, when he'll say, pray, brothers and sisters, that our sacrifice might be acceptable, he says, pray, sisters and brothers. Um, And then that led me to the third question, which another thing he does differently than what I've seen before is that during the elevation and the consecration of the chalice and the host, he uses only one hand instead of two, and I wondered if that is an important part of the rubric, or if it makes any changes in validity, or if any of that is listed or cause for concern. Okay, well, um, with the first part, um, he is to say the words as they are written. Uh, there's an old axiom, um, I think uh, Father Zulsdorf made it very popular, and a lot of people know it now. Uh, you, you do the red, you say the black. Because in the Roman Missal, the words that are printed in red ink are, are the rubrics. They tell the priest what to do. The, pr- the words that are printed in black are the words he must say. And you're to say the words as they are printed there. You're not given leeway to change. Now, in very few instances, there may be a little parenthesis that says, or similar words, but they've reduced that to a bare minimum because we want continuity. And we, and like I said, the, the, the uh, third edition of the Roman Missal in English uh, has this beautiful uh, English translation now. Uh, the word holy is not conspicuously missing as it was uh, in, the, in the former one. So it's like, it's in, like in the Eucharistic prayer one, the Roman canon, he took in his holy and venerable hands. Uh, if you omit the word venerable, I mean, it's not, in, it's not wrong, but the word that's in the Latin and is, is, is then missing. So the priest should, and if he's doing it on his own initiative, he's wrong. Uh, he's being disobedient. If he is doing because he went to a bad seminary, and uh, we all know that, the, God forbid, there's some of them were out there. A lot of them were out there in the past. We have a few still around now. But uh, like at Mount St. Mary's, we tell them, you do what it says in the book. Okay, You say what is said there, and then you're to ask your people to do the same because the words are important. They mean something. Now, elevating the chalice and the patent, I think Ruby just says he lifts up with his hands, and it's in plural. Um, again, uh, you know, we, we don't want to get too uh, nitpicky uh, and become what they call a rubrical, uh, where we put too much emphasis on the rubrics. But again, you know, he should lift it up with his hands. Uh, if some priest, like I said, I, I injured my shoulder, I had to do that for over a month, lift the chalice and the pan with one hand because uh, I, I was injured. Priests who do it for a theological reason, uh, or you switch from brothers and sisters to sisters and brothers, um, it, again, doesn't affect the validity or the lyseity, but you want to know why. Why is he doing this? And so speak to the priest with charity and discretion. You don't want to jump him outside a mass 
uh, on Sunday and, and, and embarrass him. But say, Father, can we meet sometime? I'd like to ask about that. If you could enlighten me, you know, let, uh, ask, uh, explain to me why these things are being done or said in our parish. And if you're not satisfied with the answer, then, you know, take it to a higher higher authority. But as Jesus tells us, you know, you got to start with the person themselves. You don't want to go behind some priest back and throw them under the bus unless, you know, it's something very uh, grave and serious that might uh, render a sacrament in, invalid. Thanks, Sherry. Appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Another first-time caller in the great state of Wyoming. Julie is listening on Real Presence Radio. Julie, thanks for holding. You're on with Father John. Hi, Father John. Thank you for hearing my call. Um, I have a question. My, um, my first husband died... It'll be 11 years on the 29th of this month. Um, but in, I'm trying to remember what year we are So in, ni- in the 90s, anyway, I guess it really doesn't matter. Um, but we said the St. Bridget prayers. Okay. Um, and the promises to the St. Bridget prayers. Um, did he go to purgatory or first? Or did he go right to heaven because of those prayers? Okay, well, um, those prayers are certainly efficacious, but they are part of private revelation as opposed to public revelation, which is uh, what is in sacred scripture and what is in uh, sacred tradition that is officially taught. So what is, what is in private revelation is is true, but it's something that you, you can optionally say, I believe it, I don't believe it. Um, you know, apparitions like Fatima and Lourdes, uh, Guadalupe, uh, you and I don't are not obligated under the pain of sin uh, to believe it, but most Catholics do because it's been endorsed by the Church, but it's not de fide, a matter of faith, that you must believe it. Um, I believe that, yes, uh, the, 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 the Brigentine prayers are helpful. Um, certainly the apostolic pardon is helpful, but everything's contingent on the person's state uh, at the moment that, that they pass from this life. So if if he is in purgatory, it's not a bad thing because purgatory means you, you're absolutely absolutely guaranteed going to heaven. Purgatory is temporary, but you know there are no uh, side uh, exits or ramps, all right? It's a direct route to heaven. Um, but he may be in heaven right now. So I wouldn't, I'm not saying that the prayers were not efficacious, but still pray for him because if he's not, it's no fault of yours or his. It just means maybe he has some attachment to venial sin. Uh, and, and, and a lot of us, when we're honest, we say, yeah, there's things I did in the past I'm sorry for, but I still have some fond memories of those. And that's why purgatory uh, cleanses us of that. So purgatory is not hell with a parole. Uh, purgatory is a, is a state of preparation and cleansing for heaven. So uh, yes, um, uh, still pray for him, have masses offered for him, but he very may well be in heaven. But like we just mentioned a few moments ago in a previous question, um, people in purgatory, uh, I have to say, they have it made, okay? You got your first-class ticket to heaven. You just didn't get on the plane yet. 
God bless you. Thank you. And we will keep him in our prayers as well. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. We head next to Mount Vernon, Ohio. Mary is in Mount Vernon listening on St. Gabriel Radio. And I think I think Mary thinks that you're really, really old, Father John. And she's got a question about a confrere of yours. Mary, you're on with Father John. <laughs> well, now I'm intrigued. <laughs> well, my question is, um, what words would have John the Baptist have used when he was baptizing Jesus? Okay. Now, were, I wasn't were you there, there for any of those, Father John? <laughs> Nor was Father Bob Levis. Okay? <laughs> but um, um, we don't know the exact words that were said, but we know it wasn't the sacrament. So he would not have said to Jesus, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because the sacrament of baptism was instituted by Christ. And so it was only celebrated by the apostles and the disciples, not by John the Baptist. John the Baptist, his baptism was a baptism of conversion, okay, of opening oneself up to faith. And Jesus was only baptized because he, in his, in his uh, sacred humanity, represented all mankind. So it, he had no sin, obviously, because he's the divine person, but he also represented all of us. And so his baptism was symbolic. It was a ritual, but it was it was not a sacrament. So John's baptism had no supernatural effect on people like the baptism that you and I received when we were baptized in church, either as an infant or as an adult. Uh, so what uh, John said Okay, it could have been just repent and believe in, uh, you know, repent of your sins, uh, which obviously is, you know, very scriptural, it comes from the Old Testament. But the idea of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all right, that was revealed by Jesus to the apostles. And the baptism in which one becomes a child of God, infusing of sanctifying grace, the washing away of original sin, that only happens, okay, uh, by the power of Christ. Uh, not in John's uh, uh, baptism. Thanks, Mary. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Hey, join us here at EWTN Radio for the Chaplet of Divine Mercy uh, every day Monday through Friday in the morning at 5 a.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Susan in Camden, New York, listening at EWTN.com. Susan, you are on with Father John. Hi, Susan. Are you there? Hello. We'll give Susan a try here in a second. Instead, we will head to Omaha, Nebraska. Janet is a first-time caller listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Janet, you're on with Father John. Thank you so much. Uh, Father, uh, I just have uh, confusion about uh, the explanation for limbo. I'm not exactly sure how to interpret that. Okay. Um, well, first of all, limbo is not in the catechism. It was never an official dogma. It was uh, a theological uh, speculation, and it was you know on good grounds. Uh, but it was not something like De Fide, which like there's seven sacraments. That's De Fide. Jesus is God and man. That's De Fide. Um, there's things that we must believe uh, exactly as the Church teaches. Uh, limbo was offered as a way of explaining 
the fact that you know that uh, baptism is necessary. What do you do with people who were not baptized, but it wasn't their fault they didn't get baptized? If you need the baptism to get to heaven, and it's not your fault that you weren't baptized, it would seem that that conflicts with you know God's intent that everyone at least have the possibility of salvation. And Saint Augustine said it very well. He said, um, God gives everyone sufficient grace to be saved, but it's efficacious to those who cooperate with it. Well, if he gives everyone sufficient grace, how does that answer the, when the people who have died who were not, did not receive physical baptism, not uh, baptism by water? So limbo was a way of explaining it was a state of natural happiness. Uh, children or, or, or adults who died without baptism but live virtuous lives it wasn't their fault they weren't baptized limbo was a state of natural happiness um saint thomas aquinas and others also talked about the baptism of desire so you have baptism of water like we most of us got when we were uh, baptized in church baptism by blood like the martyrs uh like the the holy innocents who were killed and then there's baptism of desire where someone wanted to be baptized or would have wanted to be baptized Again, and it was said at the Second Vatican Council, and it's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, that through no fault of their own, all right, they have not been baptized, but they would have been baptized had it been had they been told and explained to them that they needed baptism. And this implicit baptism doesn't give you the gateway to the other sacraments, however. So even though someone may have a baptism of desire, they're not able to receive Holy Communion. They're not able to go to confession. They're not able to receive any of the sacraments until you get the sacrament of baptism. But um, as the nuns used to tell us when I was in grade school, you know, if you're outside and you get run over by the truck, okay, and let's say you were going to get baptized that night and that was your intention, you got killed, all right, I believe that's a baptism of desire. What if you got run over by the truck but you didn't know that baptism was, was uh, existed or was necessary and it's not your fault. You have to make, it has to be your culpable, deliberate, free will decision to refuse baptism for you to be uh, completely um, um, guilty of, of that denial. Uh, it's a subtlety, yes. And it's something that we just want people to say, well, then I, I don't need it. Yes, you do, because you need the other sacraments. Because when you sin, all right, you commit a mortal sin, you need confession to absolve that. And you need to be, that to receive sanctified grace. A baptism of desire is, that'll get you in the door, but it would be nicer if you could go all the way to the top floor. Uh, next stop is Chicago, Illinois. Anne is in Chicago watching us on YouTube today. Um, Michael, you'll have to pot up your other uh, Comrex there. Anne, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hi, Father. Thanks for taking my question. Um, so we were told at the end of last year that uh, by our bishops that we are our priests are no longer allowed to lead us in the Hail Mary or the Saint Michael's prayer after a mass is over. And I was wondering if there was some theological reason for that because we weren't given any. Yeah, there's not a theological reason, but there is a a, a rubrical um, consideration that. It's not in the, when you, again, we talk about the Roman Missal. That's the book the priest uses to say Mass. There's nothing in there that says to the, like in the old, the extraordinary form, the, or the, uh, the traditional Latin Mass or Tridentine Mass, the, the prayers of St. Michael were part of 
the rubrics that you said that uh, the last gospel of, of St. John, that was part of the rubrics. Uh, when the, the missile was revised after Second Vatican Council, uh, those were no longer mandatory, okay? They're not part of the Mass, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong if people on their own say it after Mass, or uh, we've been praying the, the prayer to St. Michael uh, at the seminary right after Mass, and we were doing it ever since the COVID started to ask for St. Michael's uh, protection to help us uh, battle the, the pandemic. Um, I know when I was a pastor for 16 years, uh, we were praying it after Mass every day, every Sunday, Again, because there were so many wars and uh, acts of terrorism from 9-11 uh, to all over the place. Now you got the war in the Ukraine. So it's optional. It's not officially part of the Mass. Uh, but if a bishop says he doesn't want it done officially, then that means the priest you know, isn't really to lead it. But if it's done as soon as the priest leaves the sanctuary, I see nothing wrong with it. Because, again, that's, uh, that's a, a personal piety. It's just that we don't. They want to make a distinct that this is not part of the sacred liturgy. That is something distinct. And quickly, we'll head. Susan is back in Camden, New York, a first-time caller watching on YouTube. Susan, just about a minute left with Father John. What's your question today? Well, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Go yes. right ahead. Okay, I'm right. Thank you so much. Um, I'm confused. I visited a small Catholic church. It's called an evangelist and. Evangelical Roman Catholic Church, I'd like to know that term. And when I entered this church, I expected to see at the altar the crucifix with Jesus there. And instead, there was um, Mother Mary statue there. And the statue of Jesus was at the, uh, off to the side. So I'm very confused about this. Father John, what do you know about this Evangelical Catholic Church? I've heard of it. Um, the problem is that just the word Catholic doesn't mean that it's part of the Catholic Church. And so you've got Evangelical Catholic, you have Charismatic Catholic, you've got American Catholic, you have a lot of churches that are not in union with Rome, they're not under the jurisdiction of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, or the local bishop, so they're not part of the Catholic Church. They use the word Catholic, uh, there's Anglo-Catholics, there's all kinds of places that use the word Catholic, and then you've got those who are actually Catholic, like the Eastern Catholic Church is part of the, the, the Catholic faith. They're part of the Church. These other ones, like this Evangelical and this Apostolic, there's so many different varieties of them. It's almost like after the Protestant Reformation, they started breaking up into little smaller groups. Uh, this happened, you got some on the far right and the far left. Uh, they're not part of the, of, of the Church itself, so I would say uh, stay away from them. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in and kicking off another week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow, talking faith, family, and fellowship with Father Wade Menezes. Until then, God bless. <laughs>